The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're glad you're here with us. We are continuing our study in 1 John this morning. Now, last week, I had someone send me a link to a podcast that somebody did on 1 John, basically just on chapter 1. And the, and the speaker had a very different view, a very different take than I take on 1 John. Uh, he believes that it was written to a Jewish synagogue. See, I think it was written to Gentiles, to a variety of churches. And so he sees darkness as referring to the Old Covenant and light referring to the New Covenant. And he believes that fellowship is equivalent to salvation. Now, I said that, I've been mentioning that throughout our series. There's people who take that. They say when he t- says fellowship, he really means salvation. And, uh, and that John is basically, he says, calling these Jews in the synagogue to salvation in Christ. Now, I can understand how he sees that. You know, as you look at verses 6 and 7, you can see that view. It says, verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So the Jews walking in the Old Covenant are in darkness. They're lost. I think that, you know, we, Paul uses that in Romans. He says the darkness is, or the night is passing, the day is at hand, referring to Old and New Covenant. So you can kind of understand that. And verse 7 says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Yeshua his Son cleanses us from all sin. So he's saying if these Jews would walk in the light in the new covenant, they would have fellowship, salvation, with Yahweh, and Yeshua's blood would cleanse them from sin. Can you see that? I, can lo- I have loosely held to this view in the past, so I understand what he's saying here. But here's some of the problems that I have with that view. After the prologue, the first four verses, John writes this. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So John's saying the message that we're proclaiming to you, Christ gave us. We're only relaying what he told us, and that message is that God is light. The message is essentially one about the character of God. So what does it mean when he says God is light? Well, the light figure emphasizes many qualities in God. I think it talks about his splendor and his glory, his truthfulness, his self-communicative nature, his purity. But here I think the main idea that John is trying to communicate is God is holy. And I think the following context, the introduction of light-darkness, Moffat, makes this clear. This involves the moral realm. And thus it constitutes a description of God's character as pure and completely sinless. So I see the message here is what he's saying is God is holy. He is light. He is holy. And I'm sure that you can understand that Yahweh was just as holy in the Old Covenant as He is in the New Covenant. Do like this. Yes, we understand that. You know, there's some people who think we got an Old Covenant God, we got a New Covenant God, and boy, the Old Covenant God was mean and the New Covenant God is really nice. That's ridiculous, okay? God, there's only one God, and God has always been, and He always will be, all right? We have moved from the Old into the New Covenant in the way He deals with mankind, but He is the same God. So I don't see that as a comparison between the two covenants, light and darkness. Another problem with the broadcaster's view that I have would be that John wrote a gospel 
specifically to bring people to faith in Christ. He says in, in the Gospel of John, these things have been written that you might believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in His name. So he wrote a book to bring people to faith in Christ. And that's the Gospel. And the text of 1 John indicates, though, he's writing to believers, people who are already believers. 1 John is about fellowship. He's taking the believers, those who have trusted Christ, and he's saying, here's how to have an intimate fellowship with the God of the universe. Here's how to walk in harmony with God. He says in 5.13, I write these things to you who believe. They're already believers. He wants them not to sin, he says in Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Because see, sinning is walking in darkness. And he wants them to walk in the light. So sin is connected with darkness. He doesn't say, I'm writing to you that you may trust Christ. I'm writing that you may get saved. No, he says, I'm right that you may not sin. Listen, only believers can refrain from sin through the power of the Spirit. Unbelievers don't have that option. So to me, it seems clear that he's writing to believers and Gentile believers at that. He's writing to a group in Asia Minor. Another problem for me is what he says in verse 7. If we walk in the light. Now, we said last time, this is a third class conditional sentence. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. That's what if means there. Walk here is a present tense which emphasizes continuing action. Now, if walking in the light here is referring to new covenant salvation, how could John say, if we walk in new covenant salvation? It's a third class condition. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. John can't say, maybe we can be saved, and maybe we can not be saved. No, he's a Christian. He's writing, he's putting himself in this category. If we, so not maybe we'll save, and maybe we're not saved, but maybe we'll walk in the light, and maybe we won't walk in the light. It's conditional. I see John using walk here, not in the sense of, you know, he's not telling him you've got to believe in Christ. He's telling him this is how you live. He's, he's writing it in the Hebrew sense. Like I said, I believe John Eliezer, Lazarus, wrote this. He was a priest, all right? So he's coming from the Hebrew perspective here in the sense of walk means lifestyle. Look at 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him. Now, I think... John uses mano, abiding here, in the same way that he uses fellowship in chapter 1. Abiding in fellowship, he's saying the same thing. Whoever says he fellowships with him or abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. So if you're saying, well, I'm fellowshipping with the Lord, well, then your life should be characterized by walking in the same way that the Lord did. Walk here is the Greek verb peripateo. It means to walk, to live, to conduct your life. Literally means to walk about or around. While peripateo is used in the New Testament of one's literal walk, it's often used metaphorically of your behavior, your conduct, the way you live. See, the Christian life is compared to walking. And walking becomes a visual aid to teach us this is how you should live. We're to walk, we're to live like Christ lived. Yeshua said in John 8, 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So he says, you know, we ought to walk in the same way the Lord walked. How did he walk? 
always pleasing the Father. Anybody here want to say that of themselves? I always do the things that please the Father. You don't want to because we're going to talk about the person who says they have no sin in a minute. Okay? So, so learning to walk, learning to live in a way to please Yahweh is a matter of biblical instruction. You understand that? It's a matter of biblical instruction. It's neither natural or innate. You don't just say, you know, I got saved, so now I'm just going to naturally do everything that's right. Some people teach that. It's not true in my life. It seems like I do everything against what's right and what's biblical. Okay? Without the Word, there is simply no way any of us are going to be able to walk as we should. We can't walk and please the Lord apart from biblical instruction. Over and over again in the Tanakh. We read that God's people are to walk in His ways, His statutes, His laws, according to His Word. So if we're not in the Word, we're not going to be reminded of how we're to live. And be, people, because we forget things so quickly, we need to constantly be reminded. How many of you know what a tzitzit is? We got a couple who know? Okay. <laughs> Let me show you. Numbers 15.38. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels, that's the word tzitzit, tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their congregation and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. This is a tzitzit. Alright? The word tassel here is the Hebrew word tzitzit. It, tzitzit is a noun derived from the word tzitz, which... Tzitz means a blossom on a tree. And a blossom on a tree will become fruit, right? So the tzitzit is a blossom, not in appearance, but in function. And so you, you, they were to wear the tzitzit, so Numbers 15.39 says, it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh. So they wear this tzitzit on them and they see, what's that called? Oh, that, I'm supposed to keep the commandments of Yahweh. To do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. This is what it would look like in modern day. And there's a lot of people who still wear these. You know, the Hebrew Roots movement, they're big on wearing the tzitzit to remind them of what they're supposed to do. So the function of the tzitzit is a reminder to the wearer to produce fruit. Fruit being the observance of the commandments. It was to remind them the commandment of Yahweh so they would walk in them. Now, if we could get ourselves inside the mind of a first century Hebrew, it would really help us understanding things, okay? Because the word Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is usually translated as law. But to the Hebrew, it meant the journey. Now, to a Hebrew, commandment is the direction for the journey. You're on a journey, you need some directions on how to get there, right? And righteous meant that you were traveling on the path, the correct path for the journey. Wicked is getting off the path. So if we could grasp this Hebraic concept of Yahweh's Word, I think it's going to change our thinking and it's change our walk because we don't really like commandments. Right? I don't like commandments. Government says, wear your seatbelt. I'm like, shut up. I'm in my car. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to wear it. Give me a ticket. I'll pay it. 
Just got to rebel against. I mean, that's not in the Constitution, people. Okay? <laughs> that's the law of the land. All right, we don't like commandments. I don't like them. I'm sure you don't either. They're restrictive. Do this, don't do that. But listen, think about it this way. Think of the commandments of God not as law, but as directions. All right? Go this way. If you want to get somewhere and you don't know where you're going, you better follow the directions. Because you're, you're here in Virginia Beach and let's say you want to go to Arizona. You better not try going east. Okay? Unless you can swim. All right? You're not going to make it too far. You've got to follow the directions. The same is true with Yahweh's direction. If you want a life of fellowship, if you want a life of joy and contentment and peace, you have to follow the directions that the Lord has given us. He's the author of life. He knows how to get there. And He's given us directions. To not follow the directions and leave the path is to not arrive at your goal of joy and your goal of fellowship. Yahweh has laid out the direction for the path in His Word. And that's why we have to be in it. So we need to read it. We need to study it. We need to follow it. But we have to spend time in it knowing what He says. Look at Isaiah 2, 3. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. There's that Hebrew concept of paths, following the commandments. It's on the path, going in the right direction. Find, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Now, the word here for come there, come, let us go to the mountain, is the Hebrew word halak. And halak means to walk. So walk this way. Walk by the commandments of law. The Christian life, people, is a journey. We're on a journey. We have a goal. And you want to reach it, you stay on the path. Because on the path, there's joy, there's contentment, there's peace. And it doesn't matter what's happening outside the path. If you're on the path, life is going to be good even when it's not good, okay? Because God is in control. And I think as you know, Sharon shared today about these martyrs, you know, these people have, you're like, how do they do that? It's called the grace of God. You know? And God gives grace where it's needed. And you don't need that grace now because you live in America and you're like, well, we're privileged people here. But over there where they're suffering for it, God gives them grace. And I believe there's such a thing as dying grace. We've seen martyrs die praising God, thankful, content, Far from where we're at here. All right. So, I said all that to say this. I don't see John using the word walk here as meaning believe. He's not telling them they need to believe. He's telling them, he's using it in the normal Hebraic sense of conduct. Walking in the light, living holy, doesn't bring us to salvation. It brings us to fellowship with Yahweh who is in the light. He says, if we walk in the light... We have fellowship. If fellowship is salvation, then that salvation is earned. Because you have to walk in the light. So you're earning it. That's totally against Scripture. You're not earning salvation. Salvation is a gift of God. By walking in the light, he means living up to what God shows us in his word, which is light. These verses are not evangelistic verses. John is challenging Christian people to walk in fellowship. And what we have seen thus far is that fellowship with God is not an automatic thing. I think you should know that. He says, but if we walk in the light, just like he is, we'll have fellowship with one another. 
Again, if here's a third class condition, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're walking in fellowship with Christ. You notice the difference in the church? You notice in the difference in Christians? People say they believe, I, I believe the gospel. They, and people who genuinely do understand and believe the gospel, but they're just, they're not walking in fellowship with God. Their life is not about God. Their life is about them and what they can get out of life. Walking in the light is a, connect, a condition for this intimate fellowship. In verse one of chapter one, verse six to chapter two, verse one, contains six if clauses. Three of them, verses six, eight, and ten, are claims that the author views as false deductions drawn from the belief that God is light. These are what the his opponents basically are believing. These claims may be slogans or summaries of the position of the cessationists who have left the fellowship. So verse 8 gives us the second of the three clauses beginning, we looked at verse 6, beginning with if we say, and they represent the false teaching of the cessationists. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right? If we say we have no sin, the Greek word for sin here is hamartia. Thayer defines hamartia as to be without a share in to miss the mark, you've probably heard that, missing the mark, that's what sin is, to err, to be mistaken, I like this, this is Thayer, to miss or wander from the path. Okay, you're off the path. The word occurs 17 times in 1 John. Why? Because sin is what hinders the fellowship. So he's, the book's about fellowship, so he's going to tell us you don't want to sin because it hurts that fellowship. Now, in what sense... Do they mean we have no sin? What, what are these people saying? Well, some have interpreted the phrase no sin to mean no sin nature, no sin principle. But this seems out of harmony, yeah. <laughs> all you have to do is know anybody. <laughs> Another person, and you know that that's not true, all right? But, but this idea seems out of harmony with John's other uses of to have sin. Others see John alluding to some kind of dualism. See, here's the problem, people. We don't really know who he's battling against. He doesn't really tell us. We're hearing one side of the conversation, so we're trying to put together, okay? But, you know, obviously these people are saying, we don't have sin. And this could be, you know, in the dualism of the Gnostic view, all right? They'll say there's no such thing as sin in the Christian. The Docetics, who later became in certain form the Gnostics, believed that the spirit part of man was good. It was right. It was but the flesh was evil, okay? But since the flesh is already evil, it doesn't matter what you do. So let the flesh do whatever it wants, and you just say, that's not me. The spirit part doesn't do the sin. I'm righteous. I'm holy. That's my body doing it. You know, and it, it's, you can get into really weird things, okay? Claims like that. You can understand how this doctrine started to influence the church, you know? Telling people, oh, well, that's cool. I can be a Christian. I can love the Lord, and I can sin all I want. I can fulfill the flesh. I can do everything I want. That wasn't right, okay? Uh, Colin G. Krauss, who has an excellent commentary in 1 John, writes this. Contrary to what is sometimes asserted, the words, if we claim to be without sin, are not here intended to reflect an assertion on the part of the cessationists that they have a sinless nature. 
that they are free from the sin principle which operates in other human beings. The expression to have sin, echo, I don't know why that's off the screen like that, uh, <clears throat> in 1 John, but it occurs four times in the fourth gospel. And he's used it all the times that that phrase occurs. In each case, it means to be guilty of sins, allowing his usage to guide us. We could have to say that what the cessationists were claiming was not that they were by nature free from the sin principle, but they were not guilty of committing sins. See, we're not, we're, not, we're not doing that. It's not really us. By which they probably meant they had not sinned since they came to know God and experience the anointing. Okay? Now, have you ever heard of the doctrine of perfectionism? You ever heard of the quietist movement? The quietist movement was originally popular among the Quakers. And then it became part of the Arminian perfectionist movement. And they believed that you could come to a, a post-conversion experience. Because their whole thing was just surrender yourself. Let go and let God. You could come to a place where you're so surrendered that you never sin again. That's sinless perfection. That could be what's going on here. They say, oh, I reached a point. You know, the Wesleyans had that concept. I, I just don't sin anymore. I know that within the sphere of eschatology of preterism, there are some who are saying sin ended in AD 70. And so therefore, we don't sin today. That is such a self-serving view. You know, you say, we don't sin anymore, so you can do whatever you want. So, oh, it's not sin. What is it? It's just okay now. Let me, let me let you in on a little secret. Beyond AD 70, men still sin. Let me make it more personal. Beyond 8070, you still sin. Okay? Anybody want to argue with me on that? Huh? Because I'll talk to your wife, your spouse, your children. You know, somebody's going to tell me. All right. Let me have the truth here. We still sin. Sin is an issue in the Christian life. It always will be. John says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Yeah, you've got to be self-deluded. Because if you don't know, you, if you don't see your sin... Something's wrong with your theology because you've got to be saying that what I because you have to know you're doing you're doing it, all right? You know, those vigilante movies, uh, Bronson, who what was it? Death Wish. I love those. You know what? That's totally against the scripture. Because yeah, get the bad guys. But the Lord says, vengeance is mine. Uh if we're just honest with ourselves, we know. So these people are making a claim to be without sin. And it's presented here as a completed act. Don't sin anymore. The self-deception is presented, though, as ongoing. You say you don't sin anymore, you're done with it, but your self-deception <laughs> is clearly going on, all right? John is dealing with the potential acceptance of the adversary's claims by his, some of his readers. He's afraid his readers are going to pick up on this. If they were to accept the false teaching and claim to be free from the guilt of sin, he says, you'd just be deceiving yourself. And you're not being honest with yourself at all. He says, and the truth is not in us. Now, this is synonymous with deceiving yourself. That's why the truth's not in you. You're deceiving yourself. The word truth here is from the Greek aletheia, which occurs nine times in 1 John. From the survey of the use of the word truth in 1 John, it's clear that the Johannian understanding of truth is different than the Greek notion of truth. 
The Johannian idea of truth is found in the Word of the Father. It's found in the incarnate Son. It's found in the, illum the illumination that we receive through the Spirit. That's where truth comes from. The Word of God. Now verse 9 contains the second counterclaim of John. So John gives their claim and then he gives a counterclaim. And the counterclaim is in verse 9. If we confess our sins, so they're saying we don't have any. John says we need to confess ours. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this verse is the converse of verse 8. Acknowledging the sins of which we are aware is the opposite of saying we're not guilty of sin, we don't do sin. Now there are some who insist that 1 John 1.9 has nothing to do with Christians. Okay? I've heard this a lot. This is an, this is an invitation, they say, to non-Christians. Again, Let's go back, and who is the book written to? He's writing to Christians. He's writing that these Christians may not sin. Okay, that's important to know who he's writing to, and I have a little understanding there. They hold the view that the letter is about salvation, not about fellowship. So this is, you know, and they'll say, this is strictly coming to faith in Christ. You confess your sins. After that, you're good. All right? If we confess our sins, confess is from the Greek word homologeo. Homologeo is a compound word. It means to say the same thing. So what, say the same thing as what? Say the same thing God says. God says that's sin. What makes it sin? God says it's sin. So you say the same thing God says. That's sin. Why? Why do you think that's sin? Because God says it is. That's the only way anybody knows anything about sin. And someone who doesn't, who denies God, you talk to him about morality. Well, do you have a moral code? Yeah. Where does it come from? It's got to come from God. Or you don't have one. You can do whatever you want. Confessing, therefore, means saying the same thing about our sins that God says about them. Namely, that they're sins. They're offenses against Him. It's present tense, which implies ongoing action. In other words, believers, we continue to agree with God. That's wrong. That's sin. We have violated His holiness. Now some say, well, believers are already forgiven of all the sin, so they don't need to confess their sins. What do you think? Well, to not confess your sins is to not agree with God, and if you're not agreeing with God, you're not in fellowship with Him. The confession of sin is not a theme found a lot in the New Testament, okay? If you look through it, you don't, you don't find this idea a lot, but you find it several times. We see it uh, only in really three other places. We see it in the synoptic accounts of the ministry of John the Baptist when people came confessing their sins to be baptized by John, all right? We see that, we understand that. That's a, you know, they're coming to salvation there. They're confessing their sins. They're, so you say, see, well, it's, well, let's not just lock it in there. Let's keep going, all right? James uses it in James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and it's working. So what's this about? He's saying confessing our sins will bring healing. Well, context is king, so you, know, you can't just pull this verse out. It's not a fortune cookie. It's stuck in the whole book with other stuff around it. So let's back up a little. And notice what he says. Is anybody sick? Well, he says you confess sins, you get healed. And then he goes, he starts out here. Is anybody sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Hmm. 
And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Here's the issue here, how I see it. This person is sick because of sin. All right, so they're calling for the elders, they're confessing their sin. Got to deal with this. Confess their sin, and then the prayer of faith, and that's really interesting in the original Greek how that is worded and what it's actually saying, but it's the idea of he's, he's admitting, all right, there's something wrong in his life. Then, then verse 16 says, therefore, it's connected, all right, confess your sins one to another. See, you get healed when you deal with the sin in your life, he's saying. So I think that's what was going on there. You just, you know, you got sin, deal with it basically what he's saying. We also see confession in, in Ephesus where the people confess their evil deeds and they burn their magic books and you know Paul's ministry there in Acts 19. So they're confessing their sins also. And I think that's probably salvific there. But it's not in James, but it is there. Now, since each of these cases, confession, you know, or at least a couple of them is, is about you know, forgiveness. And another thing, each, each one of these things was public. So some teach that John is saying here, you need to confess your sins in public. All right? I don't think that's true. He doesn't specify it here. He just says, confess your sins. He's not saying, you need to confess your sins to other people. You need to confess your sins at this time. I would say the confession of sin here is the believer just agreeing with God, whether it be public or private, that his sins are sin. All right? It could be private confession of sins. Just You're alone with God, and you're saying, God, that was wrong, what I did. What I said, what I did, that was wrong. Forgive me. I think that's the main idea here. But it could be private confession of sins by the believer to another believer. I think that's part of Christianity. You know, you, especially if you wrong somebody, you go and you say, look, what I said to you was wrong. My, spirit, my attitude was wrong. I'm sorry. You know, you deal with it. Okay. You're, you go before God, you go before the other person. Or that may be for accountability. Maybe you're in a group accountability group, and so you're confessing your sins because that's part of the accountability group. How'd you do with this area? How'd you do with that area? Well, this area, let me confess to you that I blew it big time, okay? I blew it. This could also be in the context of worship. You know, the church gets together to worship, confess your sins. You say, I've never seen that. Well, I have. And that's why we have the 9 o'clock service that we have. No, 10 o'clock, sorry. Yeah, 9 o'clock is music practice. 10 o'clock service that we have so we can share with one another. And that's the opportunity. You don't have it here, you know, in the 11 o'clock service. This is a teaching time. But you have it at 10, you know, you got something to share. you got something you need prayer for. That's what we have that service for. But I've seen it. And I've seen believers stand up and confess their sins, you know, in tears and ask people to pray for them. And I'll never forget there was a new Christian in our group, only been saved a short time, and he came to me afterwards, and he goes, that was so great, and he's just got tears on. I was like, what do you, he goes, that, you know, I come here often feeling like everybody here's got it together, but me. And to hear him stand up and say he struggles with sin just gave me such encouragement that I'm not the only loser out here, you know? <laughs> and that's true, people, because we, we always act like, man, I got it. I got, and you just give people the false impression, like, well, you don't struggle with anything. You got it. You're on top of it. No. 
When we're honest with one another, it's encouraging to one another. It's good to know you're not the only one that struggles with the Christian life, because you're not. Okay? We all do. I think that the believer's life should be marked by continual confession. And if you're in the Word of God, you know, that reading should incorporate confession because you're reading things you're like, oh my word. You know, I read, been reading in Samuel, and I remember Friday, I hate reading it every year, David in the sin of Bathsheba, the death of Uriah. I'm thinking, here's a man after God's own heart. But at this moment, all he's thinking about is himself. And to put someone to death to cover up your sin, you know. But the interesting thing there, you know, David, you know, Nathan tells him the little story. Hey, you know, this what happened. This guy, you know, he had all the sheep he could handle, and he went and took the guy's one sheep. And David goes, that man deserves to die. He deserves to die. And then he backtracks a little, and he goes, he paid fourfold. And Nathan goes, you're the man. I'm talking about you. And you know what? David paid fourfold out of his own household. And you keep reading and you see his child with Bathsheba died. His son turns again. The things that happened in his life because of his sin. And that's the whole thing. People's sin has a payment to it. It's destructive. Don't believe the lie that, oh, sin is just fun. No. There's pleasure in sin for a season. Or we wouldn't do it, of course. But there's always a payday. Always a payday. Confession, confessing sin is a critical part of walking in the light. I just want to put that in your mind right now. We're going to talk about this a little later, but I want you to catch this connection. Confessing sin, that's what we're talking about. Fellowship, walking in the light. Confessing sin is a crucial part. So if you're not going to agree with God, you're not going to walk in the light. So when the believer agrees with God, he says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Yahweh is a faithful God. Amen? That's one of His attributes. He's faithful. Exodus 34.6 links God's faithfulness uh, with his, or his forgiveness with His faithfulness, and that might be behind this text. Exodus 34.5 and 6. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with Him there. And He proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before Him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. Now, he proclaimed the name of the Lord. Is he coming and just saying, my name's Yahweh. What does the name of the Lord mean? This is a test. You all got to pass this. The name of the Lord means what? Character. God's name is his character. Okay, that's the Hebrew concept of name. That's why their names meant something. They had character. So God proclaiming his name is proclaiming his character. Now watch what he says. A God merciful and gracious. This is his character. Slow to anger. Abundant in steadfast love and faithfulness. Okay? So he's proclaiming his name, and that's his name. He is steadfast. Love. He's faithful. He's a forgiving, faithful God. Well, it says he is faithful and just. Now, just in this text is from the Greek word dikaios. Dikaios means righteous. God is faithful and He's righteous. Does that sound surprising? It sounds surprising to me in this text. I would expect He's faithful 
and he's merciful. Okay? Because saying he's righteous seems unusual in a context related to a holy God freely pardoning unholy people. How's that righteous? How's God pardoning sinners righteous? How can he be righteous when he forgives the guilty? Don't you hate it when a judge does that? I mean, we see injustice all the time in this country. Don't you hate it when a judge lets someone go and they're clearly guilty? Well, this is a problem that Paul deals with in explaining the Gospel in Romans 3.21-26. So how is he just to forgive guilty sinners? He's just people because the sins have already been paid for. That's the only way God is just. Christ paid our sin debt. Being a just God, He can't just say, I like you, I'm going to let you slide. That's not justice. He is a faithful, covenant-keeping God to His children who He's given the gift of salvation. And He is just when He forgives because their sin is already paid in full. Before the judgment throne of God, the sins of believers are forgiven even before they are committed and even if they are never confessed because God has forgiven all our sins in Christ. He didn't pay for part of them. He didn't help you out. Look, I'm going to take care of the debt till now. From here on out, you're on your own. That'd be a pretty scary thought, people. It's all covered. Every bit of it. The price is paid and full and therefore, God can be just because you paid it. You paid it in Christ. It's been paid in full. His faithfulness may refer to God's new covenant promise that He makes in Jeremiah 31-34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh! But they shall all know Me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. So John calls on the old covenant concept of God's steadfastness to the covenant that has been established by using familiar descriptions of God as one who is faithful, one who is just. Now some expositors teach that this verse cannot apply to Christians since God has already forgiven Christians and therefore they don't need to ask for forgiveness. Well, and they would quite so it like Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The word condemnation, katakrima, basically is the sentence of death. There's no death sentence for Christians. Why? We've been pardoned because of Christ. All right, so yeah, we, why do we need to be forgiven then? Well, this view fails to distinguish between positional forgiveness that we receive at salvation and family forgiveness, which we need on a regular basis. And so many people don't make that distinction, people. And I think that's really important. Positional forgiveness makes us holy, makes us righteous. We receive the righteousness of Christ, the Bible says. And listen, people, if you don't have the righteousness of Christ, you'll never get to heaven. That's the only righteousness God accepts. So you either have His righteousness or you're damned. But family practice, practical forgiveness, that... that is a daily basis of dealing with the sins that we have in our lives. As we walk through the life, we sin, and sin interrupts fellowship. Sin doesn't change our position. Nothing. Nothing can change our position. Why? Because we are in Christ. How do we get out of Christ? You can't. 
There's no way out of Christ, okay? And so if Christ is secure in who he is as a member of the Trinity, you're secure. Because all that Christ is and has, you are and have by faith in him. That's your union with Christ. You're joined to him. But, on, on a daily basis, sometimes you don't look so much like you belong to that family, do you? You know, we see this positional relationship in Balaam's utterance of Israel back in Numbers 23. You know, Balaam, a prophet who was hired to curse Israel, and he couldn't do it because God wouldn't let him. He says, Behold, I received the commandment to bless. And Balaam's saying, you know, God told me to bless, and he has blessed, and I can't revoke it. Now look what he says about Israel. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The word misfortune here is from the Hebrew word aven. This is a bad translation here. It means iniquity. Now think of what he's saying. He has not beheld iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. Is he not paying attention? I mean, Israel was a mess. How many times did he have to deal with them time after time? He is talking about their position here. Now we looked at this briefly last week. It's John 13 when the Lord takes, you know, disrobes, puts a towel around himself, and starts to wash their feet. And he's and Peter's, no, you're never going to wash my feet, Lord. He says, if I don't wash you, you have no meros, no fellowship with me. And Peter says, not my feet, then my head, my head. Give me a whole bath. And the Lord says, you don't need a bath because you had a bath. Luo means cleanse. You've been saved. He says, you've had a bath and you're clean, but he says, but not all. Why? Because Judas was there. You're not all clean. Judas has got to get out of here. But you need to have your feet washed. Because as you go through life as a Christian, we do unchristian things. We're not very good image bearers at times. And so we need to be forgiven. That needs to be dealt with. That is familiar. Family forgiveness. And that's what John 13 is all about. I encourage if you want more information, go back to John 13. And look at it there. He says, not only does He forgive us, He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. As the believer continues to confess their sin, they're forgiven and they're cleansed. Forgive and cleanse are both aorist, active, subjunctives. These two terms are synonymous in this context. They both refer to salvation of the lost. When someone comes to Christ, they're cleansed. And from all unrighteousness, they're forgiven. But it also refers to believers. When a believer sins... He doesn't lose his forgiveness and his cleansing that took place at salvation. He doesn't experience that in his walk because he's out of fellowship. If Christians confess their sins that they are aware of. Because people, you know, there's times we sin, we don't even know it. You understand that? And in the Old Covenant, sacrifice was for unintentional sin. If you had an intentional sin, you got Discipline for that, all right? You suffered the consequences for that intentional sin. So we do things sometimes we're like, you know, sometimes we hope it's not sin when we know better, but if Christians confess their sins, then God not only cleanses them from that sin, but he cleanses them from all unrighteousness. In other words, when you're staying in fellowship, when you're walking in fellowship with the Lord, confessing your sins, you're in a pure state with God. You're walking in fellowship, you're enjoying the communion with the Lord. And this confession and this forgiveness is an ongoing process. We're always doing this. That's what life's about. Your justification is fixed and it's settled for eternity. Your practical sanctification, your holiness in life, depends on what you're doing with what you have. Now when a believer refuses to walk in fellowship with Yahweh, 
He puts himself in a position of discipline. You know, God gets angry with his children. Did you ever get angry with your children? Well, God does too. <laughs> all right? Look at, look at Hebrews, a text in Hebrews, all right? Uh, 12, 5, and 6. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved to him, for the Lord disciplines who he loves. See, that's a mark of love. Verse 6 is found in slightly different form in no less than five books of the Bible. It's found here. It's found in Proverbs 3.12, Job 5.17, Psalm 94.12, and Revelation 3.19. I think God repeats it so often so we don't forget. Chastening is a sign of love. See, you're off the path. So let's chasten you to get back on the path where you belong. Now watch what he says here. He disciplines whom he loves. And most Christians are like, yeah, that's cool. I understand. You know, you need discipline at times. And chastises... Every son he receives. Again, a weak translation here. All right? Chastise here is from the Greek, Greek word mastigao, and it means to skin alive with a whip. That's what the word means. Okay? Now, do you understand that? I understand that. God can be severe when he needs to be. Now, I've shared with you before, I knew from the time I became a Christian that God called me to preach. I was busy doing other things until God got my attention by totally paralyzing me from the neck down. And so I'm laying there and I'm thinking, I knew exactly what was going on. Okay, God, if you want to play like this, <laughs> how, do you, how do you fight that? You know, I'll do what you want me to do. You know, give me some strength back. And slowly, you know, I began to be able to, it came back and got out of that bed. But, you know, I, like I said, I knew what it was about. God can skin you alive with a whip. He doesn't like sin. He's displeased with sin. And He disciplines you. But it's because He loves you. If He didn't care about you, go do your own thing. Suffer the consequences of it. He wants you to progress in holiness on a daily living. He wants you to be His image bearer in the sense that anyone who looks at you sees Him. Now believers, I think today... As much as any time, we need to hear John's words about confessing our sins. We need to hear them. A major national magazine ran an article called Pick and Choose Christianity. Sounds good, doesn't it? It's like the Bible's a buffet. You go in there and, ah, I'll take a little of this. Nah, none of that. You know, you just pick and choose. The article summarizes the results of a three-year study of Christians of all denominations in a Midwestern state pointing out that most church members pick and choose which of the teachings of Christianity they will accept and which they will leave behind. One of the least popular teachings was that regarding sin. That's why my boy, my boy Joel Osteen never mentioned sin. He knows it's not popular. You know, I'm trying to get a crowd not offend people, so you don't talk about sin. Sin. The article stated... What many have left behind is a pervasive sense of sin. Although 98% said they believe in personal sin, only 57% accepted the traditional notion that all people are sinful, and watch this, fully one-third allowed that they make many mistakes but are not sinful themselves. Now, do you hear John's words? If we say we have no sin, you're deceptive. Okay, all you got to do is get one of these people, like I said, talk to one of their relatives, their spouse, talk to their children, 
Confessing is agreeing with God that sin is sin. But today, people don't want to call it sin. You don't hear the term adultery very much anymore, do you? You know what we call it now? It's an affair. No, fornication is way too strong. We can't use that. We just It's an affair. That sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? Adultery sounds... That sounds ugly. But affair sounds nice. And, and people will say, well, as long as it's between consenting adults... We think it's okay. Yeah, but God calls it sin. So what you think is not important, you're not confessing, agreeing with God and what He says about it. You know, today, people think that killing an unborn baby is a woman's right. But God says it's murder. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. People say, well, that, no, that's not... Yes, the Bible says it is. Back in Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because God made man in his own image. And when someone destroys the image of God, their life is to be taken also. All right? So the question of whether or not abortion is murder, typically leads to asking, well, what constitutes a baby? I mean, they say, well, it's not a baby, it's a ziggurat. It's a zygote. Or it's an embryo, or it's a fetus. But it's not a baby. Well, Dr. Jerome Lejeune, father of modern genetics, stated this. To accept the fact that after fertilization has taken place, a new human has come into being is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. It is plain, experimental evidence. Okay? Dr. Jaime Gordon, chairman of the Department of Genetics at the Mayo Clinic, says this, By all criteria of modern molecular biology, life is present from the moment of conception. Now, the fact that a lot of Americans, and I don't think it's a majority, I really don't. I think the problem in our culture is the minority has the voice of the media. And so we're hearing the minority voice proclaimed all the time. But no matter how many people think abortion is right, and it's a woman's right, it doesn't make it right. Okay? To the contrary, it only increases the scale of the crime and rebellion against God. You know that more babies are murdered annually in America than the number of Jews who are murdered annually during the Holocaust, during the Second World War. The alarming statistics now show that an innocent, unborn child is killed by abortion every 22 seconds in America. A professor at a college ethics class presented his students with this ethical problem. You know, saying college ethics is almost an oxymoron today. I'm serious. You know, the inmates are running the asylum, and that's one of our problems. But he says this, a man has syphilis. His wife has tuberculosis. They have four children. One has died. The other three have what is considered to be terminal illness. The mother's pregnant. What do you recommend? So the class discusses it. After a spirited discussion, the majority of the class voted she should abort the child. The professor said, fine. You have just killed Beethoven. See, we think we have wisdom in deciding these things, and, you know, we just, we're foolish. We're foolish. The Bible clearly condemns abortion. It is murder. And listen, murder is always wrong. 
But instead of confessing our sins and saying what God says about abortion, we say that a woman has a right to kill her unborn child. Why? What gives her that right? Today we have women marching in the streets to support their right to kill their own children. How sick of a society have we become? If you crush an eagle's egg, you will go to prison. But you can kill a baby. And you know what? You're applauded. That's wonderful. We want to fight for this. They're asking all the women who've had abortions, stand up and testify how wonderful it is that you had an abortion. It's a sick culture. It's wrong, people. It will always be wrong. Okay? And it's not, a, listen, a fetus, a baby, is not part of a woman's body. It is a separate being that is living in her body. So she doesn't have the right to do anything with that. Her right started way before that when she decided, you know, to have sex and have a baby. All right? Today, we call homosexuality an alternative lifestyle. Something else. You know, just an alternative. But God calls it an abomination. Romans 1, 26 and 27, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchange the natural relation for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The word, the word relations here is crisis and it is a well-established term for sexual intercourse. That's exactly what he's talking about here. They carry on a sexual activity contrary to the intention of the Creator. Natural here means in keeping with how God designed people. And unnatural refers to behavior that is contrary to how God made people. Now in the Greek text, the words translated woman and men here mean female and males. Paul's language is the language of sex. Homosexuality is an unnatural relationship to oneself and to one's body. And consequently, if we believe the words of Paul, it's contrary to God's order. That's the teaching of the whole Bible. In other words, the Apostle says that the relationship of heterosexuality is natural and normal. Natural here means keeping with how God has designed people. Unnatural refers to the behavior that is contrary to how God has made us. When man forsakes the author of nature, he forsakes the order of nature. And today, we speak of homosexuality, you know, it's like if you speak out against it, you're dubbed as homophobic. As though they now should be the ones hiding. We, you know, we should be hiding because we're, we're homophobic. So now the evil of homosexuality has been surpassed by the evil of homophobia. Opposites of Opposition to homosexuality is not shameful. Homosexuality is shameful, as are all forms of morality. Don't let them twist things and make us the bad guys because we won't accept their sin. Now listen, this is so important to understand. This does not mean that we act cruel or rude or ignorant towards people who are homosexual. All right, We are called to love people, to treat them with respect, to treat them with love. But we have to speak out against the sin, and when you have an opportunity, you do that. 
You don't accept it. You don't go along with it. But always acting in a God-honoring fashion. The Bible says homosexuality is a sin. The Bible hasn't changed. You know, once the American Psychiatric Association said homosexuality was a mental disease? Not that long ago. They've changed now. Because, of course, they have to, right? The media... Educators, government agencies are increasingly portraying homosexuality, not just in a favorable light, in a light that's, you're just so enlightened. You are so special. It, it is a, it's a privileged position nowadays. It's not shameful. It's like, wow, look how great you are. And tragically, this is where it really gets bad. The most potent endorsement of homosexual movement comes from the organized church. Because how the church portrays that, people care. Whether they act like they don't care or they don't care. If the church with one voice would stand up and say, this is wrong, they'd be like in the back of their mind, I, I just don't know. It'd be easy to conclude that only liberal churches endorse the homosexual lifestyle. But on the contrary, the largest homosexual denomination in the country is the Evangelical Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches. The first Metropolitan Community Church was founded in Los Angeles, of course, California, in 1966 by Reverend Troy Perry, formerly an ordained Pentecostal minister and author of the book, The Lord is My Shepherd and He Knows I'm Gay. In six years, the Metropolitan boasted more than 39 charter congregations, 43 missions and study groups, with a combined membership exceeding 17,000. In 10 years, it grew to 67,000 in well over 100 locations across the world. Their doctrinal statement is solidly evangelical. They believe in the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the resurrection, salvation by grace through faith. They promote evangelical outreach. They perform evangelical weddings with one small twist. Most of the couples they marry are same sex. Tony Jones, who is an author and church leader in the emergent church movement, says that he believes gay, lesbian, bisexual, transsexual, and queer individuals, I don't know the difference there, are individuals can and should live out their sexuality and be blessed by it, the Christian, and should be blessed by the Christian church. The emergent church. There's people, you know, we just need to. Yes, that's fine. Really? When did God change his mind on that? Well, you, you know, society today. No, God didn't write the book just for society at one point in time, all right? Listen, like all other sins, people involved in homosexuality, they try to justify their sin. So homosexual churches have a homosexual theology in an attempt to biblically defend their homosexual lifestyle. Instead of confessing it as sin and agreeing with God, they justify their sin. And that's the problem today. Nobody's agreeing with God. We're coming up with our own idea on things. And people are buying it, especially when it's coming from the church. Well, what about same-sex marriage? What's the Bible say about that? Well, look, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2. Now concerning the marriage about which you wrote, it's a good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now that means out of wedlock, okay? That's what he's talking about. Uh, the King James says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But the touch there doesn't mean... 
No, it's, it's sexual relations that they're talking about, okay? But, okay, good. You, you're, you're single, you don't have sex, all right? But, because of temptation to sexual immorality, here's how you deal with sexual, sexual temptation. Let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. There you go, that's how you fix the problem. Now listen to me, people. I think this is important. So, one of the purposes of marriage is what? Sexual fulfillment. Okay? Hey, you're being tempted? Get married. Well, if I get married, my wife won't give me sex, then I'm still being tempted. And your wife is in violation of the marriage covenant. And I think we should deal with this more when we do marriages that people understand. That's one of the reasons. You guys are agreeing to meet each other's needs. It's part of it. Well, he says, each man should have a what? A wife? And each wife, each woman should have a husband. Okay? A woman can't have a wife, and a man can't have a husband. Okay? That doesn't work. Marriage is the joining of opposite sexes. From the biblical perspective, marriage is only between a man and a woman. And guess what? Guess who invented marriage? Okay, so he has the right to tell you how to do it then, right? Because he invented it. Only two people of the opposite sex can fulfill the procreative purposes of marriage. Now, Justin Lee, this is interesting, who's the executive director of the Gay Christian Network. I've went on the site. I've read a lot of their stuff. It's amazing. I mean, they, they, just, they argue for the purpose of we're Christians, but we're gay and all this stuff. And listen, let me, let me say this here. Uh, step, maybe step out there or some of the people will get upset. I believe that homosexuals can be Christian. They can believe the gospel. They can trust Christ. Homosexual has a lifestyle. Okay? They're then to break with that lifestyle and to live righteous, holy lives. Okay? But if they're not doing that, they're in sin. Okay? We think a homosexual can't be a Christian. Really? Let me ask you this. Can an adulterer be a Christian? Only two people of the opposite sex can fulfill the purpose of marriage. So here's Justin Lee. Now listen to what he says because this is important. He's the executive director of the Christian Network, and he writes this. It's certainly true that God designed our bodies with heterosexual, heterosexuality in mind. Really, I, I, that's pretty, it's pretty wise of this guy, right? That's how new human beings come into the world. Hey, he's on top of it, right? I don't think anyone can deny that heterosexual sex is the way our bodies were built to function. But... Does that mean that using our bodies in another way is sinful? It does if the Bible says it does, right? And guess what? The Bible does say it does. Believers, we cannot walk in the light, which means walk in fellowship with God, if we are not confessing our sins. This is extremely important, people. I don't care if it's homosexuality, adultery, bestiality, you name whatever it is. If you're living in a sin, you can't say, I'm walking in fellowship with God. You're in darkness. You're not in fellowship. Are you a Christian? If you've trusted Christ, yes, you're part of the family. You don't get kicked out, but you get disciplined. Now, in closing here, I want to compare verses 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, because I think there's a, just a beautiful comparison here that you've got to see that shows that what he's talking about here, he's talking about fellowship and sin. He's not talking about salvation. All right? So let's compare these two. We looked at 6 and 7 last week. We just looked at 8 and 9. Let's compare them. Both of them start out, if we say, verse 8, if we say. 
Then he says, we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness. Verse 8 says, we have no sin. Those are saying the same things. See, if you say you have no sin, well, guess what? Then you'd be in fellowship because you don't have sin. But if we have fellowship with Him while walking in darkness, we can't do that. He says, we lie because you do have sin and we deceive ourselves. Okay, that's saying the same thing. We lie, we deceive ourselves. And he goes, and we don't practice the truth. And then verse 8 says, truth's not in us. We're not practicing, it's not in us. All right, now watch the next one. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, okay, there's the fellowship. Now watch what verse 9 says. If we confess our sins. People, those are saying the same things. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we are confessing our sins. If we're confessing our sins, we're walking in the light. They're synchronous. Okay? You can't be someone who's not confessing their sins. You can't be someone who's disagreeing with God about sin and think you're in the light. You're not. He says, we have fellowship one with another. And if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. So there's forgiveness, there's fellowship. The blood of Yeshua's Son cleanses us from all sin. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't it interesting how verse 6 and 7 and verse 8 and 9 are saying the same things, just using different concepts here, okay? If you want to walk in the light, people, one thing I hope you can see from these parallels is that denying our sin is part of what it means to walk in darkness. Confessing our sin is part of what it means to walk in the light. Now, we dealt with some you know, pretty specific out-in-your-face sins today, but we could have easily said gossip, lying, backbiting, what, laziness. I mean, we could go on and on. You know, there, there's a lot of things in the Bible that are called sin. But we, you know, we retranslate them today so we're clear. Hamalagao, to agree with another. If you want to walk in fellowship with God, then you need to agree with Him about sin. But listen, the only way you can do this is if you spend time in the Word of God. Because if you're not in the Word of God, you don't know what sin is and what's not sin. Because I'll tell you what, if you just go to church to hear about sins, you're going to find a lot that aren't even in the Bible. All kinds of... Listen, I always felt like there was enough sins in there, you didn't need to add more. Okay? But somehow people add more. Just like the Jews of old, you know, there were 613 commands, but the Jews added a bunch of stuff to it because they didn't want to get too close to sinning. All right? So they built fences further and further out. People do that today. Well, we don't want you to, you're supposed to be separate. You know, so you can't go to movies. You can't play cards. You can't, you know, that's separation. Well, does the Bible say I can't play cards somewhere? No, but, you know, again, we want to add things too. We don't need to do that. Okay? The Bible tells us how we are to live. Get in there. Find out from the book itself how you live and not live. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity, Lord, to look at your word. Lord, I thank you for this uh, little epistle of 1 John, and Lord, I think it's going to be a rough ride for us. Um, it might be a bruising experience, but I thank you, Lord. We need to know the truth of your word. Lord, I think we desire to walk in fellowship with you, to be on the path, Lord, to be honoring you by the lives we live. Lord, I pray that we'd be in such deep fellowship with you that the world would see it, Lord. When they see us, they'd see you. We could say like the Lord, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Teach us, Lord. Guide us. May we be willing to recognize sin and confess it before you. Amen. All right. Questions, comments?
same context. I'm hoping, but it's not I can, when I go home, I can look it up. I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, when you preach today, uh, teaching today, uh, is it somewhat similar to 1 Corinthians 3.18 when it says, if any man among you seems to be wise in the world, then become a fool, that he may be wise. Is that something different or is it similar to what the teaching is? I know the context. Well, I gotta go way back yeah, I don't know. I'd have to look that, look that up in context. But I think the thing is, you know, Whenever we profess anything apart from the Word of God, we're being a fool, okay? Man has their own ideas, you know, I, we would not come up with the sins the Lord has come up with because, you know, we think, well, this is just hindering my fun. It's not at all, you know, but yeah, we would be wise. The wis wisdom is to, to be on the path, to follow the path, to live by the commandments the Lord has given us, the guidelines, the directions, so to speak, and to get off that path is it's just a dangerous place. Well, we can be deceived. You know, that's what he said in there. So you deceive yourselves. You're self-deceived. And there's people there that are self-deceived. These perfectionists, they said, I reached a place in my life, I don't sin anymore. And I'm like, you just did, because you lied. That's sin. See, people, when you know that you're a sinner, you keep close accounts with the Lord, because you know you have to. Gary? Well, you, you touched on this um, that society, if we're not in the Word, which I have to work on myself, okay? Not saying I got that now. Um, scripture reading and, and memorization and study, we're going to be influenced by the world. And that's the problem with the, the churches in general, is most of them aren't reading or following the scriptures and they're not being taught from the pulpit and uh, so they're easily influenced by the majority voice which is secular and, and anti-God but if I don't if I'm not in the scriptures myself I'm not going to know that what they're saying is wrong but, and I would be very comfortable I guess because I'm with the crowd I'm not going to be persecuted or, or laughed at or mocked because of my beliefs. Mm. But if I know my beliefs are solid, solidly based on the Word of God, then it's not going to matter. That's what, it's, it's got to be based on the Word of God. I, I got a question uh, from David. He said, you suggested today that we can sin without knowing it. That means we can sin by accident. How do you support that? I maintain that every sin I have committed has been on purpose and outside trusting God how does one sin accidentally? Well, that, that's, that, that's a good question. And I think that uh, I would explain it this way. Um, sometimes we willfully sin. We know this is wrong. I shouldn't do this. I know the Word of God speaks. I'm just going to do it anyway. Okay? There's other times we do things because we're thinking that's not really wrong. I mean, in the back of our mind, if we sat down and examined it, we'd say, well, this probably is. But we've worked, we've deceived ourselves to the point we don't even think that's sin. So that's what we have to be wake, woken up to, that that's wrong, what we did. All right? And again, I go back to the Old Testament for support. There was intentional sins and unintentional sins. You know, and I think sometimes we do things, we say things that are sinful that we never planned on saying. It was something spur of the moment. I know sometimes stuff comes out of my mouth. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Why did you say that? 
Yeah, my wife, my wife asks that same question sometimes. All right, so that, that's what I mean. I mean, it's not something you're going full force and I'm going to do this, you know, and so that's how I'd answer that, David. That's, that's the best I got there, okay? Yes? He didn't know that he was speaking against the priest. I don't know if this would be a good analogy or comparison, but, and they said, uh, how dare you speak against the king of priests? He said, I didn't know that this right. was. I didn't know he said, high forgive me that for sinning against the Lord, you know? I can remember, I can, personally, I can remember, because I'm giving God that credit. I can, I can personally remember back in the day that some of my morning prayers, I'd, I'd be asking him, praying for him, Father, forgive me for my sins, even the ones that I don't know that I've right. sinned. And I, I don't know if, if Garrett was saying something close to that, but, or that, I mean, that caller, but is, is, that, is that good to say, or is... Well, I think, you know, yeah, if you're being honest. Yeah, and, you know. and David, I, I thought of a sin, okay, that I committed unknowingly, okay? Mm -hmm. I married my wife. Now listen, she was an unbeliever when we got married. I was a new Christian. I was reading through my Bible, but I hadn't got to Corinthians yet. Okay? I didn't know I wasn't supposed to marry an unbeliever. I had no clue about that. That's it, I'm leaving. Yes. <laughs> so the Lord knew that was an unintentional sin. But before we got married, and then I went to boot camp. So we went from paradise to purgatory, or I did, you know, but I made her promise before I leave that she would read her Bible every day, and so about halfway through boot camp, she writes me a letter saying that she trusted Christ, and so, you know, the Lord looks out for idiots, you know, and takes care of them, And but that was an unintentional sin, I did because I didn't know it was a sin, all right, so I guess that could be maybe a category. Stan? That could give you, uh, you know, Basically, what you said, like my friend, he was dating a non-Christian, and he basically, of course, we'll always tell God what we're going to do. In fact, he, when uh, the next date, he said, you know, if she isn't a Christian, that's it. But she, you know, became a Christian, and, you know, they've been married, and he's a pastor, and so. Yeah, I would, I would recommend against missionary dating. You know what I mean? They're an unsaved person, but I'm going to try to win them to Christ. If they really like you, they might fake it for you. Oh, let's, I like this. Let's go along with it. You know, don't, you know, if you're going to share the gospel, share it with your own sex so you don't get, uh, you know, that complication in there. It can get complicated. Hey, Marty writes, uh, the production looks fantastic. Everything seems to be working. Thanks, Marty. I Hopefully, we got things on track. Uh, appreciate your comment there. Um, Okay, Bob just says the comparison of those verses in 1 John was excellent. I just think there's a, a direct comparison there. And that's why I think this is talking about sin. And it's not talking about Old and New Covenant. It's talking about sin, and it's talking about fellowship. And that's what is important here. All right, anybody else? Um, regarding David putting Uriah to death, um, or having Uriah killed, you commented on... How, how egregious was that to kill someone to cover up their sin? And they're saying all the people this would have to die to cover up my sin. Well, we, we're, also, we're so blind when it comes to sin. You know, we don't see our sin as sin. And that's why a lot of us need a Nathan in our life, you know? I mean, because we, we're like, that's, I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, can you, 
David heard that story from Nathan, and he thought, this guy's a, this guy's a mess, man. This guy deserves to die. I know he doesn't even think about it. He's got a harem, and he takes somebody else's wife. And then he kills the husband. Sick. Um, Rico from Oregon says, Do you think some people say Christ died for all our sins, past, present, and future, so why should I continue to confess my sins? I know that's erroneous, but how do you help them understand so? Well, again, you have to understand the difference between your position and your practice. In your position, your sins are clean. Before God, you're as righteous as Christ. But in your practice, and again, I'd go back to John 13. Spend, go through John 13. Look at that. That's what it's about. Daily life, we wrong each other. We sin against God. That needs to be dealt with on a continual basis. We need to have our feet cleansed. Okay. All right. Anybody else? We done? For, for quitting early, you mean? <laughs> I can keep going. All right, we're gonna. I'm gonna help you out. We're gonna skip the closing song. Okay. I don't know how it got that long. Um, I think it must be something wrong with the broadcast. It makes makes you think it's longer than it is. <laughs> Let's stand together, and be dismissed in prayer. Father, thank you this morning for your people. I thank you for the questions, Lord. I thank you for the interest in the Word of God. Father, may it be a treasure to us because in that Word you are revealed. And may we desire to know you in such an intimate way that we reflect you, Father. That we bear your image with the things we say and the things we do. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen.